funny thing happened to me on the way to the church. Yeah. Um, this is my disclaimer. This is the warning. Okay? You may feel the need to lift your feet up off the floor at some point in the sermon today. Um, this is this is not what I planned on, and that's the problem. Okay? Um, what I planned on was not what needed to be done. So here a couple of weeks ago, after some wise counsel from a co-worker of mine who pointed out a couple of things to me, you ever have somebody tell you something that you know intellectually, but you failed to put in practice? Right? It happened a lot when I was a kid. Okay, My teenage years, even my early 20s, stop nodding, both of you. Okay, Dad and Steph back there looking like a couple of bobblehead dolls. Um, you know something is the right thing intellectually, but you fail to put it into practice. That's foolishness, right? Scripture even says that's sin. To know the right thing to do and to not do it is sin. That's bad. Even the Veggie Tales had a, a whole, whole, whole take on Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer on in, in that application. But um, so, anyways, this don't blame me. Okay, I've had my rounds in the ring with the Almighty getting this fixed. So now what happens is you guys get to hear the result, okay? Um, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, and going all the way through verse 30. This is a big parable, 16 verses, 17 verses. Um, I would wager a guess that most of us, if not all of us, have heard... This parable read and taught more times than we can count. And I mean even the little ones, right? This is a popular parable for people to teach. Um, I would even say that you could probably, if I put you to it, if I gave you a piece of paper, you could probably paraphrase And I'm talking even those of us whose memories are full of more holes than Swiss cheese. Okay, and you could probably give a pretty solid interpretation of what the parable means because it's really not that hard of a parable for us to wrap our heads around. If you think about the context, Jesus has been talking about his return and and I spent all of chapter 24 telling you that it's my opinion that his return that he was talking about was both in the near term destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD and in the long term the consummation of his kingdom right and at the end of chapter 24 he talked about the wise and faithful servant versus the behavior of the wicked and lazy servant and then in the beginning of chapter 25 we had the parable of the ten virgins the five wise virgins who brought enough oil for their lamp for the nighttime procession to the bridegroom's house for the feast and the five foolish virgins who brought enough oil to get there, but not enough for the procession. And so they missed out on the feast. And so we've got the parable of the talents, where we have what I'm going to read. Um, You thought I was going to tell you the end before the beginning. Not going to happen. So, um, this is where the, the warning that I gave you comes in, because the application of this, the application of the principles in this parable... Um, that I had dropped on me like a ton of bricks 
uh, driving, let's see, we were just about at the railroad tracks on 49, just before we turned onto Highway 90, when this started, and if y'all ever want to pity somebody, you need to pity Steph, because she gets preached to more than just about anybody else in the house, all right, the whole way down Highway 90, all the way home, it was a Wednesday morning, I took half a day off because I just didn't feel like going to work. All the way down Highway 90, the application of this passage just, it was there. And I preached pretty much this whole sermon, driving down Highway 90. I didn't even have it written yet. So when I got to work, I took my laptop out and just about melted the keyboard off to get it down on paper so I didn't forget. So, for you guys, start by reading. I'm only going to read from verse 14 to verse 18, so that we have more time for the important stuff. Okay? Y'all can read the parable on your own. Y'all have Bibles, and I want you to start reading them. Okay? All the time. Not just on Sunday. Okay? Deal? All right, good. So let's all stand, and I'm going to read from verse 14 to verse 18. After I turn the fans on, because I got a feeling I am going to be rather warm by the time I'm done. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, or one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Let's pray. Father, I know that this message is your message. I've tried to give my message, and that failed. So, Father, I pray that your people would hear your word and understand your heart and your desire for what your church is supposed to do. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So we start out, Jesus says, for it will be like. It will be like. What is it? His coming in judgment, right? Because that's what he's been talking about. Whether that's the judgment on Jerusalem, whether that's the consummation of the kingdom, whether it's a combination of both, it will be like a man who went off on a journey and who called his servants together and entrusted them with his property while he was gone. This parable looks a lot like the end of chapter 24, where he was talking about the wise servant and the lazy servant. Except here we have three servants instead of just two. To each of the servants, we, we read, according to their ability, he gave differing amounts for them to be a steward over. He gave them a different quantity of talents. Now, what is a talent? Does anybody know what a talent is? Back then, it was money, right? When we say talent, we think about somebody who can play the piano, 
10 fingers, 88 keys, not going to happen. Okay? Uh, there's a reason I play drums. I can, I, I can do drums. I, I, got, yeah, I got hands. I can do those. Right? Uh, back then, a talent was a coin that was worth the value of 100 denarii. That helps, right? Um, way back, goodness, probably six months or more ago, um, we talked about the parable of the workers where uh, in the morning the owner of the vineyard went out and he hired a group of workers, right? And then a couple hours later he went out and hired more, and then a couple hours later he hired more, and when it came time to settle the bill, he paid all of them the same amount, right? We said back then that a denarii, a denarius, was approximately one day's wage. Now, back when I started putting these notes together, one denarii back then would be the equivalent of about 14 bucks back then. Okay, 14 U.S. dollars. A talent then would have been about $1,400 in today's currency. Simple enough. The first servant received five talents, approximately $7,000. Second servant received two, about $2,800. The third, ta- uh, third received one. And again, I want to highlight, they were given these amounts because of their faithfulness, because of their ability, because they had shown the aptitude, for lack of a better term, that they could manage this quantity of money for the owner when he came back. Okay? Now, as naturally as breathing, after he gives these servants a grand total of $11,000, give or take, right? He leaves. He just walks away. That's all we're told, right? Uh, that's in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. Just left. Did he give them instructions on what to do with the talents? Did he give them an expectation of what he expected when he came back? No. That's not recorded in the parable. Jesus doesn't tell us where the man went, how long he was gone for, what the purpose of his trip was. Uh, He doesn't mention anything about instructions. He doesn't mention anything about expectations. He just tells us that this guy just gave his servants $11,000, $12,000 and then left. But what Jesus does tell us is that the first servant went immediately, as soon as, as soon as the master left, he went to the marketplace. Now, now the marketplace, when we think marketplace, we think like a strip mall or maybe an open-air market overseas or something like that. This is more like going to the stock exchange. This is going someplace where money is, is things are bought and sold and traded to make a profit. So this is like going to Wall Street. He went and he bought and he sold and he made money. A lot of it. <laughs> Five talents more. That's a lot. He just doubled that, that 7,000 to 14,000. 
want him managing my portfolio, right? Okay? Um, now, i got to tell you, how many of y'all have ever done stock investments? Anybody? Ever play the stock market? You have? Yeah, okay. Most of us do it that way. You know, maybe, maybe we'll put into a mutual fund and let somebody else manage it, right? i got a couple of guys that I work with uh, or that I have worked with. One of them, uh, he retired about a year ago or so. And uh, his plan was to retire from the military and work for Chevron as an uh, uh, electrical control systems technician. Uh, but the position that he had lined up, part. So now he is sitting at home playing the stock market. That's all he does all day long is buy, sell, and trade. And uh, I've watched over his shoulder. You can make a lot of money doing that. You can lose even more. <laughs> you want to talk about gambling. It's safer to go play the slots in some cases than it is to play the stock market. There's a lot of risk involved in this kind of buying and selling because you might, you might be able to go buy that donkey for 50 denarii, but there's no guarantee somebody's going to buy it from you for 75. You might wind up keeping that donkey till it dies. What did you wind up with? A dead donkey. Right? That's, that's, not a, that's not a guaranteed investment. But this servant goes and doubles the amount of money. Now remember, this is a parable. This isn't a real story. Jesus is not recounting history. And he is not advocating that we all go out and gamble to make money. <laughs> that's, that's not what he's talking about. That's not in line with who God is. The second servant does the same thing as the first guy, and he makes two more talents. The third, he's, he's the important one in the story. It's the ser- third servant, instead of going to the market and risking losing that one talent, he goes out to the backyard, digs a hole, puts a talent in it. Okay? He buries it. He puts it somewhere safe where it won't be lost. Now, how many of you have an IRA or some kind of retirement fund like that? A 401k, an IRA, a mutual fund, something like that. Anybody? Okay, there's, there's a couple of us, all right? How many of you have a savings account? Okay, quite a few more. How many of you have a stash of money hidden somewhere in your house or backyard? Okay, that's the, now in my case, that is the least safe place I can have money because it's where I can find it, right? That's, that's not good for me. So a savings account is my someplace safe. How much interest do you make on a savings account today? Not much at all, right? You listen to, you listen to the guys like, like Dave Ramsey and, and Ron Blue and the people who, who talk about money management from a Christian perspective, and they'll tell you that a savings account and even a certificate of deposit they call them certificates of depreciation <laughs> because generally you don't make as much interest as inflation takes away from the amount of money that you put into it, right? They don't recommend those except as a holding place for money until you can gather enough of it to move it someplace where you can earn more, right? So this guy basically puts the money in a savings account <laughs> with 0% interest. He's fixing it in a hole in the ground. Now... 
the master did not give instructions as to what the servants were supposed to do with the money. We don't know anything else about this situation except that two of the servants went and played the market with about 10 grand and made a profit while the third guy played it safe and stuck the money in the safe. Okay? If we stop the parable right there, okay, is there any reason or any evidence that would allow us to judge any of the three servants as either commendable or condemnable? Is there any value given to what they have done at this point? No. None. Zero. Nothing. Okay? If it weren't for Jesus giving us the rest of the parable there would be no reason for us to think that any of them had done anything either good or bad. All of their actions would have been just a different choices, right? But in the course of teaching the disciples, remember, this is what Jesus is teaching, that they need to be prepared for his return, no matter how long it takes. He tells them that the master has returned and that there was a reaction to what the three servants had done. Now, real quick, before I get to what the three servants had done, I want to read verse 15 again. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Okay? The master comes home. The first servant comes to him, the one with five talents, and now he's got ten. He says, here you go, boss. What does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The second guy, two talents. Now he shows up with four. Same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. At this point, most preachers talk about this is what we do with the gifts that God has given us. We need to go out and invest them in the world. We need to go out and put them to use so that when Jesus returns, we can come back and show fruit, right? It's a true statement. It's not the application for today. Told you the important guy is the third servant, right? The master was impressed with the work that these two had done and that it returned 100% above his investment. He calls them good. He calls them faithful. They had anticipated the desire of their master. They knew what the Lord of the house expected, right? And they acted according to that knowledge. They did what they knew was expected of them. They accomplished it. If we go back to the end of chapter 2, what I told you about the good and faithful He understood the desires of his master and he met them. He fed the family when it was the time for the family to be fed. He cared for the house. He did what was expected of him by his master. The wicked and lazy servant. In chapter 24, Jesus makes it really easy for us to understand that the wicked servant did wrong because he said, well, since my master's taken so long, I'm just going to go to the restaurant and have some food, maybe drink a couple of beers and have a good time. 
I'll be ready when he comes back because he's taking forever. Right? And then the master shows up while he's at the restaurant. There's a problem. Here, these two knew what was expected of them. They accomplished it, and they're rewarded. Apparently, this this master, this lord of the house, was military. Because how did he reward them for what they had done? He gave them more responsibility. (laughs) He gave them more responsibility. There's a phrase in the military, no good deed goes unpunished. Right? I know it happens in the corporate world too. If you do your job really well, you're rewarded by getting somebody else's job to do as well. Okay? That's, that's just the way it goes. And that's what happened. These two were given a greater measure of responsibility. They showed that they could be trusted with this much, so he gave them this much. He promoted them, basically. He put them over a greater scope. Then we come to the third guy. Now, the, I love this guy. I feel for this guy. I understand this guy. I understand this guy today better than I did when I read this two, three weeks ago. Okay? This servant comes out, and he tells the master what he did. Look at verse 24. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid... And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Why did he hide it in the ground? Because he was afraid to lose what he had been entrusted with. He was afraid to risk that one talent. The master comes back and he's only able to give him a half a talent. What's going to happen? Right? I was afraid of of losing what you gave me, so I buried it so I could give it back to you when you got back. Here you go. Did the master lose anything? No, he did not. However, this was not what he expected. (laughs) This was not what he had hoped for. Because the servant... Now, number one, I'm sure this kind of did not set the master up in his mind. Because how did the servant describe him? As a thief and a pirate. (laughs) Okay? Now, it might have been true. It might have been accurate. Nobody wants to hear that they're thought of as a thief. The second reason he was probably upset was because the other two guys had doubled what he gave them, so he expected to get two talents, and here he only gets one back. So he curses the servant. He calls him wicked and lazy. But he doesn't argue against the servant's assessment of his character. (laughs) He doesn't say, you wicked servant, not of a guy i don't take advantage of people and that sort of thing he doesn't argue against that so that is his character in fact he says if you knew this about my character why didn't you at least go put it in the bank where it would draw interest this is Uh, a a little interpretive note here. I have to show you 
that this is why we cannot look at a parable, all of the parables, as allegories. You know what an allegory is? That's where everything represents something else, right? Now, I've, I've heard a lot of preachers allegorize this parable. I even told you guys that, that the first two come back with their 100% return, people say, see, the talent represents what Jesus has given to us. The master is Jesus coming back, right? Well, if the master is Jesus coming back, number one, how does somebody describe Jesus as a pirate and a thief? They don't. And number how would Jesus not say that the master argued with that if that's supposed to represent Jesus coming back? He's not a pirate and a thief. That's inconsistent with who he is. This is not an allegory for Jesus and the church. The servants are an example of what Jesus expects of his people in their actions in the church. The principal issue that this parable exposes is that we need to act according to what we know about Christ in the context of His return. If He says that He's returning in judgment, which He has, right? And whether, whether you're with me and you, you understand verse, uh, chapter 24 to be talking about when He returned and judged Jerusalem, and the future consummation, or whether you're a, a preterist that he was just talking about judging Jerusalem, or, or you're a futurist where he's only talking about the consummation of the kingdom, you can't argue with the fact that in chapter 24 he says, I'm coming back to judge. Right? If he says he's coming back to judge, and he says the church needs to be prepared, then what ought we do? We ought to be prepared, right? Okay. I'm, I'm glad it's plain and simple to you guys too. We should act according to his warning. What are the things that Jesus has taught the church to be in the process of? Okay, we have the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus is ascending into heaven. He's standing there, he looks at the disciples and he says, listen... All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? So making disciples, that's one. What else? Oh, come on now. You wonder why I told you all you need to read your Bibles more often. Huh? Okay, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses, not you should be, not you ought to be, not you have the opportunity to be. You will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? We are to be witnesses to what we have seen, heard, and know about who Jesus is. Everybody go like this. Well, make sure your neck muscles work. You ought to be agreeing with this very heartily. This is what we're supposed to be doing. If you go to John's Gospel, in the upper part, it starts chapter 13, 14, and continues on until Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane before his execution, right? He tells the disciples, a new commandment I'm giving to you. What is it? 
Love one another. Love one another. What does that mean? I've told you all before, that word agape that is translated and beat on by pastors is a verb. I'm taking a Greek class. I can tell you, I know that for a fact now. (laughs) It is a verb. It's an action word. You are to do something for one another. And it's not just have warm, fuzzy feelings. If If he was telling us to like one another, he would have used the word philos. Philos. Okay? That is the word for brotherly affection. That is the word for like. He wasn't telling us to like one another. He was telling us to love one another. And that word agape, normally, when it's applied in Scripture, specifically to God's love, because that's the only word that's applied to God's love, God doesn't like us. He loves us. Because, quite honestly, we're pretty unlikable. Right? He loves us, which means he seeks our best. Right? All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Okay, so if we're his children, all things work together for our good. How do they work together for our good? He does it. If you want a really good understanding of the word love, think about John 3.16. Y'all know John 3.16, right? Does anybody not know John 3.16? God... So love the world, and, and there's, there's another translation out there that I, I really, really, really like. God loved the world in this way. Not he loved the world so much. He loved the world by doing something. What did he do? He sent his son, Jesus, to die in place of his people. It's an action So Jesus says, number one, we're supposed to make disciples. Number two, we're supposed to be his witnesses. Number three, we're supposed to love one another, right? Which means seeking each other's best all the time. We have the scriptures. We have these 66 books. Uh, my, My buddy Danny points out all the time that Baptists used to be called people of the book. And we are now at the highest rate of biblical illiteracy since the Dark Ages. Does the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? No, but there's people out there who think it does. Poor Richard's Almanac. Not the Bible. God will never give you more than you can handle. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. That's not in there. Right? See, we're supposed to know who Jesus is, so we're supposed to be able to teach people what we know about him. Going back to the Great Commission, making disciples teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? So these are the things we're supposed to do based on the knowledge that we have of who Jesus is and what he has done. When he returns, we should be found to be obedient. Obedient to his nature, right? He is the word, he is love, he is all of those things. So we should be obedient to his nature. We should be obedient to his commands. We should be obedient to his desire for his word to go out into the world and for his kingdom to grow. Right? Okay. Now, back to the parable. I still haven't gotten to the application yet. It's coming. 
The master commands that the one talent be taken away from the wicked servant and given to the one with ten talents. And then he makes this statement. To everyone who has, more will be given. To those who have salvation, who have Christ in their life, who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, more will be given. But from those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. So by contrast, if the one who has is the one who has salvation and the Spirit and all of that, then the one who has not may be the richest man on the face of the planet, may have a nice car, nice house, good family, good education, may even do all the good stuff, but whatever he has is going to be taken away. The two servants who understood their master and who acted upon that knowledge represent people who are saved and who act that way. They took what was given to them and they acted according to the desires of their Lord even without being told explicitly. All right? Now, they were operating from a handicap. They weren't told what to do with that talent. And they still did it. We've got... 66 books. We've got the very words of Jesus telling us what we're supposed to do. The third servant, he was still a servant in the household. He said for the same master. He said he knew the master's character and his bent towards thievery <laughs> to, to sugarcoat it a little bit. He said he understood what his master would require of him. He claimed he was acting based on the knowledge of his master's nature and character. But his actions were not in line with what his Lord required. Here's the part where you might want to lift up your toes. Originally, I had planned on putting some rhetorical questions in, you know, about where are we as a church in the United States, where are we as the church in the Gulf Coast, where are we as a church in Olivet. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to tell you this straight up. For the last seven years here with me, and probably, I'm guessing, for the period of time leading up to that, and, and based on the testimony of Bob Dyer and other people that I've talked to who've been at this church for a while, probably for about the last 30 years in this church, we have been the third servant. Period, paragraph, in discussion. We say we know what Jesus expects. We say we understand what he desires of his church. But what do we do with the gift that he's given us? We go out to the back 40 and bury it next to the septic tank. We bury it here in this sanctuary. Y'all are faithful. Y'all are here. I can honestly say y'all have been here more often than I have. Because <laughs> the last three, four weeks. Right? Y'all are faithful to come here and to worship God, which is glorious. Y'all are faithful to give. I was telling Steve when I met with him here uh, a week ago... We could go Friday. 
that this is the givingest church I have ever seen. I mean, I was, for 14 years we've been here on the coast, for nine years, eight years, seven years, seven years, I've got to do some math real quick, for seven years we were at Bay Vista. And for like five of those seven years I was confined to the finance committee. <laughs> and, and it is a sentence. It's a necessary thing. But man, it's a tough battle to fight. When I started on the finance committee at Bay Vista, they had a budget that was almost three quarters of a million dollars. It was a big campus. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of ministry. And in the five years I was on that finance committee, I watched that budget go from three quarters of a million dollars to a quarter of a million dollars. When we came up here, that's about where it sat. 275, give or take a little bit, thousand dollars. That's a half a million dollar shrink. Why? Because they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. They're still not. Danny and I have had this discussion. And, and I would, if I were standing at Bay Vista, I'd preach the same message. Because I know them folks. They're still part of my family. They're not doing what Jesus required. They're taking that talent and they're coming to church and they're burying it right in the middle of the sanctuary. They're keeping it safe. They're acting based on what they think they know about Jesus. Jesus wants us to come to church. No. Jesus wants us to be the church. The church is active. Right? When, when Jesus said to Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter says... Well, people say you're Elijah, and some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet. And Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? What was Peter's response? You're the Christ, the son of the what? Living God. That means God's alive, right? Oh, we're all too happy to talk about that movie. God's not dead. Woo! Okay, what, is that like a battle cry against Nietzsche? All right, because last I knew, Nietzsche was dead. God's not. Okay? Jesus is the son of the living God. And then what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, flesh and blood has not shown this to you, but the Spirit, right? And so I call you Petros, because his name was Simon. I call you the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, Peter is a rock. Sometimes, look in the scripture, he's a rock, okay? A little thick-headed. But he is the rock. He is the foundation upon which the church was built. The apostles and the prophets, right? The word of God. We are the church. We're supposed to be living stones, right? How much life do we have in us? How much life do we show in us? See, I came up here and, and I heard, I was told, I was told over and over and over again that, that the previous pastor, John, can't remember his last name, same alive. Yeah, him, right? I was told that when he was the pastor up here, he was full-time and he was out knocking on doors and bringing the people to church all the time. And I was told that the pastor previous to him, that was Caldwell. I think that was Caldwell. He was out knocking on doors and inviting people to church and in the neighborhood. And he would occasionally take people with him. So would Bob Dias. But who were the people that were doing the work? Pastor and Bob Dias. Right? 
Everybody else was coming to church, burying the talent in the front yard. Okay? And I told you all when I got here, look, church ain't big enough. I have teenagers. <laughs> if I were to survive on what the church could pay, they would not. Okay? Because I'm being honest, I'm not talking about just money, but, but I have to work on Keesler Air Force Base because the budget here is not big enough to pay what I need in order for my family to eat. Let's not even talk about to have cars and, and that kind of stuff, right? I can't be the guy walking the neighborhood pounding on doors. I can't. And I haven't been. I set that, that I put a flag on the moon right there. I am not going to be the guy who's responsible for growing this church. That's your job. However, I'll be the guy who teaches Sunday school. I'll be the guy who sets up the music. I'll be the guy who provides the sound system. I'll be the guy who pays for the repairs. I'll be the guy who, I'll be the guy who, that was a really small mountain that I died on right there. I'm not going to do that, but I'll do everything else for you. I know intellectually that God has gifted each and every one of us as believers for the work of the kingdom. Scripture tells us that. I have I've tossed spiritual gift surveys at y'all. Probably time for us to do another one. Right? What is your giftedness? What has God gifted you with? Do you have the gift of administration? That means organization and running things. Okay? Right? It does not run in my family. Except maybe her. Okay? Do you have the gift of encouragement? Do you have the gift of giving? Now, everybody has the responsibility to give, but are you the kind of person that can give? Not just give, but give. Do you have the gift of evangelism? Right? Remember, the person who has the gift of evangelism is the person that can stand on the street corner and preach, and the trash can gets saved, and the mailbox gets saved. I mean... They're the person out there fishing with a cast net. Or you like the rest of us where you have to preach the gospel with a hook and a lure, which means you have to understand the fish that you're trying to talk to. Right? Are you a gifted teacher? Are you a gifted leader? We need to know what our giftedness is so that we can put that together for the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom is not just to build this congregation. I would love to build this congregation. I was telling uh, somebody, I don't remember who it was, we can comfortably fit 400 people in this sanctuary. We'd have to steal the chairs back from next door. We'd have to get rid of the table back there. We'd have to probably put more chairs on each side. right? But we could comfortably fit 400 people in this sanctuary. Hmm? We could. Do you know what it looks like from up here to see a room built for 400 people with 25 in it week after week after week? And 25, that's a big number lately. Okay? There was a point a couple of years ago before they all moved down here, it was like 17, 15. Do you know what that looks like? Go to a cave. Believe it or not, there is an echo. (laughs) 
We have all been gifted for the work of the kingdom, for the ministry of reconciliation, for the work of disciple making. And even though I preach that all of that is the responsibility of every believer to be involved in the ministry of the church, even though I have personally applied this lesson in the lives of my children. See, here's the, <laughs> this is part of what came out on Wednesday, right? Check it out. If you've ever raised a child, particularly if you've ever raised a child in a Christian home, or if you've ever influenced a child in a Christian home, right? We have the responsibility, the glorious responsibility of bringing our kids up in the faith. I've done it four times, okay? Still working on the last one. He's a little bit weird. (laughs) Okay? But see, there's this thing. I cannot be their faith meter. I have to... Like when Alyssa went up to to college, the eagle landed, right? How how does the eagle land? Because mommy and daddy eagle go, get out, right? In their faith... I have had to give them the freedom to be exposed to situations that make them grab that faith for themselves. I cannot be their faith meter. They have to know that that faith is theirs. Right? Well, in today's world, we have, we have this phenomenon called helicopter parents. Right? What a helicopter is known for? They hover. They hover. Right? And school teachers deal with this a lot. Right? Helicopter parents, they hover over their kids. They're, they're watching all the time. There's a new term that has come out that I saw on the news a couple of weeks ago. It's lawnmower parents. Lawnmower parents don't just hover to make sure their kid's okay. They hover and find obstacles in the path and clear them with a lawnmower. So the kid doesn't have to face any adversity. Okay, adults in the workplace, when was the last time you faced adversity? <laughs> Okay, we can go back as far as Friday, right? Okay? Adversity happens. It's part of what life Right? And exercising our faith means that when we come up against adversity, we hold on to that truth that we know in Scripture, right? So, so here's the deal. Even though I have taught the church that it's y'all's responsibility to be doing the work of the ministry, even though I preach time that it's the responsibility of the church to be doing the work of the kingdom... Even though I've lived it out in my kids' lives and I put them in positions where they have to exercise their own faith, I have been acting like the third servant. I have been stepping into gaps that I'm not meant to be stepping into. And so have y'all. Now, Just to let you know, I have not made a shipwreck of my faith. I've not forsaken God. I've not turned away from the faith. None of that. That ought to be obvious standing up here right now. Okay? Because this is probably the most fired up I've been over the application of a sermon in a long, long, long time. I haven't felt like this for probably a year. I'm still secure in the knowledge that nothing can separate me from the promise of God's love. Period. But what I have done, what I have done, and I need to repent. Y'all need to hear this. This is not easy. This is this is this was about uh, this was right about at Eisenhower, <laughs> driving down Highway 90. That, that, this this is where this part came in. Okay, what I have done 
is I have deprived you, this little corner of the global church that has been placed under my shepherding, I have deprived you the opportunities to put your faith into action. I have stepped into gaps that are not mine to step into. I told you I had some wise counsel from a buddy of mine at work, right? He is a chaplain at Singing River Hospital. I actually work with him on the course that we're responsible for. He's my training manager. I'm his curriculum developer, right? It's amazing how God works. He puts a very strong Christian in my path where I move into a new seat when I didn't even know I needed it, right? And Barry comes over. Barry's about this tall, skinny little fella. He comes over a couple weeks ago on Monday, and he says, you know, one of the things that I've really learned is that I want to be where God wants me to be because when I'm where God doesn't want me to be, a couple of different things happen to me. He says, number one, I don't get the blessing for doing something that God doesn't want me to do because God doesn't want me to do it. It might be a good thing to do. Okay? I think you all would understand and, and recognize that teaching Sunday school an adult discipleship class is a good thing to do, right? But if God doesn't want me to do it, I'm not going to get a blessing for doing it. Now, I don't do it just to get a blessing, right? Okay? Number two... This is the real hard one. If I'm doing it, and I'm not supposed to be, then I'm stealing the blessing from somebody who is supposed to be doing it. Think about that for a minute. If you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing, then you're blocking the person who is supposed to be doing it. Whoa. So they're not getting the blessing that they're supposed to get. Right, And then there's that whole aspect of not doing what God has told you to Because if I'm over here doing what God hasn't told me to do, what does that mean about the stuff that he has told me to do? I'm not doing that either. Right? Because I'm over here. I'm supposed to be over there. So there, those three things, I have blocked this church from being who God wants it to be. Not intentionally, not maliciously, right? Now, I will tell you, there is another there is another spiritual gift. It's the gift of service, okay? So I have double whammy. That's, that's one of my spiritual gifts. I also have the gift of overlooking cell phones. It's okay. <laughs> when I take my spiritual gift survey, I am gifted teaching. Go figure, Okay? I always score high in teaching, I score high in giving, and I score high in acts of service, in doing stuff for people, okay? Now, have you ever heard of the book, The Five Love Languages? Okay, it's a great relationship book. I have a copy of it if you ever want to read it. It's an amazing psychological study of how people interact with each other, okay? Basically, there are five different ways that we show and receive love from other people, okay? You have... Um, words of affirmation. If you're the kind of person who really likes to get complimented or you're the kind of person who compliments other people a lot, that's probably your primary love language. You have gifts, giving people gifts. If, if gift giving is the thing, then, then that's probably your spiritual gift. If you like to get a gift, if you like to get flowers, chocolates, stuffed animals, just because, you're probably a gift giver. Okay? There is touch, non-intimate touch. Okay? If you are a hugger, if you're a handshaker, 
If you're the kind of person that just has to be able to reach out and touch somebody and that's how you show affection, that's probably your primary love language. Okay? There's uh, acts of service. Right? I'll wash a car for you. <laughs> right? If that's how you show affection to people, and if that's how you prefer people to do stuff for you, to show you that they care, then that's probably your primary love language. Well, guess what one of my primary love languages is? My, my first one is touch. Okay? I am a, a... I have to touch people. That's just who I am. Handshakes, hugs, as stiff. She can't be further than arm or distance away from me. Right? My secondary, acts of service, double whammy. My spiritual gift, love language, acts of service. I'm going to jump in and do stuff, but I can't. That's what has been part of what happened to me five weeks ago. I have burnt my candle at both ends in the middle, and then I drilled out a hole along the wick and lit the whole thing on fire. Full-time work, full-time student, full-time pastor, full-time Sunday school teacher, full-time discipleship trainer, full-time, 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 full-time. You can't, they ain't only so many hours in a week. And I burnt myself out. This is why I'm taking the next month. I, in doing some introspection, all right, in doing some introspection over the course of the last few weeks, right, you might be shocked to hear this. Dan told me when I started as a pastor, just, just make sure one thing, that you don't relegate your scripture reading to just when you're looking for sermon material. Because that's really easy for preachers to do. Okay? Over the last year, guess what I've done? only time I crack the Bible is when I'm looking to write a sermon. I let that spiritual discipline fall away. Okay? My prayer, prayer life, up here every Wednesday night, up until the last few weeks, right? And I pray. Pray for the church. Pray for you all. Quit praying for myself. Let that discipline fall away. Standing here Sunday mornings, Still working on this one. When we sing, we have some great songs of the faith that we sing. And yeah, I know it's not a professional choir. I know y'all aren't necessarily trained in musical and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't sound half bad. But you know how easy it is for this guy to be standing back there with his mouth going, making the words, making the noises, and worship is the furthest thing from my mind. I'm thinking about the thing that has to happen. I'm thinking about not here, who is here, I'm thinking about the way people are acting, if there's something wrong with somebody, if there's a tone of voice that shows that something's going on, I've got 8 million things going on in my head, I can't remember the last time that I sat in a church service to worship, you know there aren't very many spiritual disciplines that we're supposed to maintain, <laughs> reading the Bible, prayer and worship, I still give, but most of it is maintenance for the church because I'm the guy who's going to jump in and do that so it gets taken care of, right? 
That's why I asked you all to create a fund to do the air conditioning stuff. Because I've got to stop being that guy who jumps into the gap. Now, beginning of November, I will be back here. At that point, I'm going to challenge all of you, and I'm going to have met with Steve on a couple of things. We have two choices for this church. Olivet Baptist Church as it stands right now today. Okay, Not the membership, but just the structure of the church. We have two choices. We can either A, engage the community that surrounds this church and start reaching people with the gospel of Christ like we're supposed to, or B, come the first of the year, Olivet Baptist Church will be no more. Okay? It's that simple. I'm not talking financially, because God has continued to... I know Peggy has seen it. I've seen it. Every time we think, okay, we're done, bloop, here's a little bit more. Keep going. Talking spiritually. How far do you live from the church? Okay. How far do you live? <laughs> how long? You, how far do you live away, John? You guys live in Wool Market, Cedar Lake Road, down off of 49, all the way over in Biloxi off of Pops Ferry? We don't. We don't. But what that means is we have to work at it. I've got some strategies that I'm going to be working with Steve on the next four weeks or so. That's part of my, part of my rehabilitation. These strategies are going to require every person here to be engaged. They might require sacrifices of time. They might require sacrifices of money. And I might have to reach outside the church. That's part of the reason I'm working with Steve. There are folks across the road who have never been inside a church except for funerals or weddings. How do we reach them? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe what we need to... You ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? <laughs> College student. Maslow's hierarchy... One of the... the there are, there's a, a stack of needs that we have, right? I, I know you've heard of it because James preaches it. James says, what profit is it if your neighbor comes to you and says, I'm naked and hungry, and you say, well, I'll pray for you to be warm and well-fed, and then you slam the door in his face. Right? Okay? Maybe we got people in the neighborhood that are hungry. Maybe not for food. Maybe we got people who need to know some parenting skills. Now, I'm not saying we got the corner on parenting skills here. Right? Maybe we got some kids in the neighborhood who need some math tutoring. Any of you good at math? Just, yeah. Just basic math. I'm not talking about calculus. Because calculus is a pagan religion, and I won't allow that to be taught in the church. Maybe they need some cooking skills. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> right. This is the giftedness that I'm talking about. 
need to find out what the needs are. We need to find out what naked and hungry to the folks who live on these streets around us and figure out how we can meet those needs. Because I'll tell you, surveys have been done over and over and over and over again. And churches will tell you, well, the reason we're not getting young people in the church is because we play the wrong kind of music. You know what young people in the neighborhoods have said about music in the church? They don't care. They don't. They don't care what kind of music we have. What they care about is, is the church engaged with their community? Does the church care about the people or does the church just care about the numbers and the bank account? Do we care about the community? That's the challenge. This is, I'm done, I'm finished being the third servant. I know that Jesus has given me a talent. He has given me something according to my ability. My ability is to preach and to teach. I'm not giving up Sunday nights. When I come back in November, we're back into our study on Sunday nights because I love that every, much as, every bit as much as those of you that come do. Okay? I love to preach and to teach. I'm not taking over Sunday school yet. I found a substitute. However, I'm going to quit burying my gift. And I want you all to quit burying yours. This sanctuary is not a savings account. It is not a certificate of deposit. What those two servants that were faithful did was risky. They went out into the market and they took that talent or those talents that they were given, that money that they were given, that opportunity that they were given, and they doubled it. They saw a return on their investment. we got to start doing it. Otherwise, we just shut the doors. Okay? So with that uplifting note, there's your ultimatum. Four weeks. First weekend in November, I'll be back. I appreciate y'all praying for me, because I know you are. I appreciate you caring for her, because I know you are. But I want to challenge you. How can we reach the folks that need to hear the gospel? That's our job. We say we know Jesus, and we're not acting according to that knowledge. We're wrong.